This morning we're actually going to be looking at chapter 11, but for the sake of context, I want to begin by reading chapter 10, verses 18 through 11, 1. And chapter 11 is a very long chapter, and if you're familiar with it, it's not only a very long chapter, but you can read that chapter. If you're like me, you can, you can read that whole chapter and then ask yourself, okay, what did I just read? I don't really know what I just read. And you can read it several times and um, find it to be quite uh, uh, elusive. And what I want to do this morning, actually, is I want to I back up from chapter 11 because we can, we can so easily get lost in the details of it. But I want to back up and try to look at it from a bird's eye view, if you will. And I, um, I want to break it down into about four sections, and we'll read those four sections of chapter 11 as we come to them. Of course, doing this, we run the risk of seeing it as a unified whole, and I'm trying to circumvent that by backing up and beginning in chapter 10 with verse 18 through 11.1. So let's, let's begin by reading there. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your holy and sacred word. Father, we thank you that uh, you have recorded these things for us. And we recognize that not all of Scripture is equally clear, that many passages are are certainly uh, not as clear as others. But you've given us all of your word for our our correction, for our rebuke, for our strengthening and encouragement that we might be equipped for every good work. Father, we pray that you would be pleased to give us understanding. Though we will not be able to go into every detail this morning, and though we don't understand every detail of the passages we come to you, Father, we are confident that we will get the main thrust, that we'll get the clear. That which is clear, Father, is what we desire to uh, major upon this morning. So, Father, we pray that uh, you would be pleased to uh, teach us uh, from your word, that we might hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, again, obviously this morning we continue in our study in Daniel, and last week we began a new section in chapter 10, but it's really important that we realize, as I've already started to say that uh, this is all one section. Uh, Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all one uh, very lengthy section, one single vision uh, this morning. So as we continue in our uh, study in chapter 11, uh, we're just continuing on in this vision. Uh, This angelic visitor is speaking to Daniel. Last week we looked uh, at the angelic visitor and we uh, we, we determine as uh, an archangel that is speaking to uh, Daniel. We, uh, we were unable to conclude that it is God himself or that it is uh, Christ speaking to him for he uh, says that he re- 
that he really requires help from another archangel and uh, on account of that it's hard for at least it's hard for me to take the interpretation that it's God himself speaking to Daniel uh, instead it's one of his messengers speaking to Daniel God doesn't need any help from another archangel or from anyone else Christ during his earthly ministry needed no help uh, when he came in the presence of demons they shuddered and they fled from him uh, so I, I take the position that this is an archangel who is speaking uh, to Daniel. And as we push forward, we need to be mindful of where we've come. Uh, last week, we took in the jarring and eye-opening truth that behind uh, all of the evil in this world uh, is this spiritual conflict that's going on in the heavenly places. And God is in the process of redeeming and building his kingdom. And Satan is opposing him every step of the way. These are things that we all know. Uh, I, think we, I think every one of us understands that. Uh, but we need to be constantly reminded of it because oftentimes uh, we seem to have a, a, a sort of, um, uh, of agnosticism about this when we go about doing ministry. We go about, uh, when, when we find ourselves going about ministry, uh, simply leaning on our own resources and in our own strength, we prove that we really don't get this. The, the forces of evil in the heavenly places that are opposing God are extraordinarily powerful. And we've already learned that uh, whoever this satanic angel was who was uh, associated with the king of Persia, Whoever this being was, he resisted this archangel for 21 days. That's extraordinarily powerful. Sometimes we forget this. Now, if the archangel who appeared to Daniel in chapter 10 and really pulled back the curtain, if you will, into the spiritual realm, if that same archangel was to appear to us here this morning and pull the curtain back on what's taking place in the valley right now, what do you suppose we would see? I think it would be very frightening. Uh, uh, these satanic angels have not just been sitting around idle all of this time. Uh, they continue to go through one chapter to the next, to the next, to the next, opposing everything that God is trying to do. And we see that uh, these powerful angels are directly opposing God's angels. And when we look at the condition of the church this morning, we look at the suffering that's going on, we look at the conflicts that are ensuing, uh, we see how this cosmic battle actually is pouring out into the earthly realm. I think we really need to start seeing things uh, through this light. So ultimately we say with Paul, uh, our battle really is not ultimately with flesh and blood. Uh, but it's ultimately with these satanic forces in the heavenly places, isn't it? That's why to lean on worldly and earthly uh, strategies is so worthless. Uh, uh, it's uh, futile at, at best. Now, before we begin looking at chapter 11, let's remember what Daniel was doing when this vision began back in chapter 10. Again, before we go forward, let's be sure we look backward. We want to be sure that we're... Uh, we're steeped in the context of this. What was Daniel doing when the, uh, when the angel came to him? He was mourning and he was fasting, wasn't he? And he was in a season of prayer. Why? 
What is he mourning and fasting in a season of prayer? Especially during the time of the Passover. We saw last week that this is taking place during the first month of the Jewish calendar year. It's the time of the Passover. Why is Daniel mourning? Why is he fasting? It's because uh, three years ago, Cyrus had issued the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Daniel and the faithful have been waiting for this for 70 years. They've been waiting on the, the, the temple to be restored. And, and Cyrus blows the whistle and the green light's on. And off the people go to begin the rebuilding. And things don't go very well, do they? In fact, they go very poorly. In fact, the opposition that the Jews faced as they began to rebuild caused the excitement over the project to become very short-lived and it was abandoned. And we can make application right now. We don't need to go any farther. You know, the, the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.5, listen to these words. He says, we are like living stones who are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean? It means that as believers, we are part of this living temple. We are actually, if we want to speak metaphorically here, we're the building materials. Christ is the temple, right? And we are part of his body, aren't we? And just as Daniel looked around and saw the discouragement, in some cases the abandonment and the spiritual destitution of what was going on in the third year of Cyrus, we can look around and see discouragement in the building of the temple. The temple's being built right now, isn't it? It's being built as men and women and children are called to Christ, isn't it? And we can look around and we can see discouragement. We can look around and we can see, in many cases, a wholesale abandonment of the gospel. We can look around in many cases and we can see an abandonment of preaching systematically through God's word. We can see spiritual destitution. And as we take us in, what are we to do? What does Daniel do? He's in a season of prayer, isn't he? He's in a season of prayer. He commits himself to prayer. Now, the archangel tells Daniel in chapter 10, verse 12, which we just read a few minutes ago, as he comes to Daniel, he says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I've come because of your words. And we see that God's responding to Daniel's prayers, isn't he? He's responding, and um, really our prayers are an integral part an essential part, an ordained part in the building of this temple. And I, I made a simple application of that last week. I, I said to all of you, if you're in Christ this morning, someone prayed for you. In fact, probably more than someone. It's probably a group of people praying for you. And just as we pray for others to come to faith, someone prayed for us. The prayers have been ordained into this. Sometimes we can think, well, God's, he's in the business of doing this. What do we need to pray for? Oh, we've got to pray. The prayers are part of it. The prayers are, 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 in, are, are intricately woven into the fabric of what God is doing. Now, Daniel has committed himself to pray in this difficult time. And the archangel wants Daniel to know, and through his prophecy wants us to know, that many difficulties lie ahead. We, we understand that, don't we? Uh, but we need to be reminded of it. And what takes place in chapter 11 is this prophetic glimpse, looking down through the corridors of time from Daniel's perspective, 
uh, of the future events that are going to be taking place. And uh, I might remind you of something that was said a few weeks ago that uh, Daniel may have had in his mind that once the temple was being restored, God would come and consummate his kingdom. I think we could probably come to that, uh, that uh, conclusion if we were Daniel. I don't know if he had that conclusion or not, but I think it's likely he might have. Once the temple is restored, God's going to, he's going to usher in the consummation. I think we could come to that conclusion. I think what the angel here wants Daniel to see is, no, not quite yet. There's still a lot of things left to unfold here. Now, this morning, let's, uh, uh, let's begin. Let's take a look at chapter 11. We're not going to, we, we really can't look at this verse by verse as we're, accustomed to doing it would take many weeks to get through all of these verses and I'm not sure I I think that it would be I think it would be a great exercise to do in a a classroom setting perhaps when we could spend a lot of time on each verse in terms of a series of sermons I I don't know that would be the best way to communicate uh, chapter 11 uh, because as we're going to see it's it's very tedious and most of us do not have a lot of knowledge about the historical developments of Syria and Palestine and Egypt from the time of Daniel to, say, the second century B.C. That's probably not an area of expertise for many of us. Uh, so it becomes very tedious. But um, let's, let's look at a few of these details. The first section that we're going to look at goes from verses 2 to 4. And let's, let's just read that, and we'll, we'll take that in its, uh, as it comes. Uh, Verse 2, Daniel 11, verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall rise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now, this first section concerns uh, prophecy. It concerns events that are going to be taking place from the time of Daniel to about 322 B.C. And uh, verse 2 tells us that there are three more, uh, three more kings that shall arise in Persia. Notice it says, uh, a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. Uh, This fourth king is largely understood to be Xerxes. And uh, Xerxes goes up against the kingdom of Greece. And uh, verse 3 introduces us to Alexander the Great. And if we have any knowledge of this time period, we probably will recall that Alexander the Great conquers the known world at a very young age, by the age of, I think, 33, if memory serves me correctly. Uh, very swiftly and quickly. Uh, But what happens to Alexander the Great? Uh, While he's on top, he suddenly dies. And uh, the kingdom is not given to any of his uh, offspring. In fact, his four generals, he had four very powerful generals, uh, they receive his kingdom instead. If you look at verses 3 and 4, notice the prophecy here. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he will. Verse 4, and as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. 
This is a stunning uh, prophecy, isn't it? Um, the second section begins with verse 5 and goes through verse 20. If you'll look there with me, I'd like to read those verses. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall rise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their mental images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come out into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight with the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall, be put, uh, shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress, fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall end an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Some of you might recall what I said just a few minutes ago. You can read these passages many times and then ask yourself, what did I just read? There's such detail here, such astonishing detail. And I want to look at that. What we've just read covers the years 322 to 175 B.C. And these verses describe a future conflict, future to Daniel, of course, past to us. A conflict that's going to rise between the dynasties of two of Alexander the Great's generals, uh, Ptolemy in the south and Seleucus in, uh, in the north. And 
really, uh, Daniel's prophecy is we're going to see. We're just going to look at a couple sections of this because I want to show you how detailed and how precise this prophecy is. Uh, it's so detailed, so precise, that many uh, modern scholars have concluded Daniel couldn't have written this. There's a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of scholars that say Daniel's a second century writing. Uh, this could have only been written after all these events. There's no way Daniel could have written these things. Now, this doesn't speak for every scholar that takes that position, so I don't want to put everybody into a box here, uh, but it speaks for a majority, uh, for many, and um, the, the idea is that no man could predict the future this way. Well, to that, I would say yes, amen. No man can predict the, predict the future this way. But Daniel's not doing the predicting. And neither is the archangel. The archangel is a messenger. Who's doing the predicting? God is. And if he can speak ex nihilo, if he can speak, if he can simply say, listen, let there be, and cause this universe to come into existence, it's describing a few details about the next few centuries is not going to be a big deal, is it? Hardly the case. If an archangel were to ask God a million years ago all of the details about any one of us, he could have given him everything that they could have ever asked for and wanted to know. Isn't that amazing? Yet we, every day, get up in the morning and freely make choices. And all these choices, they have, they have uh, uh, ramifications that extend far beyond what we could ever imagine. A simple choice about where we're going to work, what we're going to do for a living, which probably will end up deciding where we're going to live. And God knows all that stuff and still can predict. It's just amazing, isn't it? Let's look at this for a moment. Um, uh, again, you know, we, we, we can't go through this verse by verse, but uh, let's take a look at a, a few of these. Um, you know, Ptolemy, he becomes a ruler of Egypt in the south, and Seleucus... Actually, another general of Alexander the Great, he's a weaker general. He becomes king of the north. But there's another general of Alexander the Great who comes by and kind of overtakes the north area. The north area being the Babylonian area where Daniel is. And Seleucus flees to the south and serves under Ptolemy for a period of time. And then Antagonus is attacked. And upon that attack, he's weakened, and Seleucus sees this. Politically, he sees this. He sees it as an opportunity to go back up into the north and retake his, uh, relay, uh, uh, reclaim his, uh, his kingdom, which he goes and does. And as he does this, he becomes very, very uh, strong. Uh, now, in the meantime, there's constant fighting between the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north. And really, these verses all... Uh, if you read them over and over again, you'll see there's just constant fighting between the north and the south, between the, the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south. And uh, the second generation of Ptolemies and Seleucids, they, uh, they, they get this bright idea. Here's, we're going to bring peace to the land. Here's how we're going to do it. Ptolemy says, listen, I'm going to send my daughter Bernice up to, uh, uh, up to the king of the north and... Uh, We'll let, the, we'll, we'll let the king of the north marry my daughter Bernice. And then as they, uh, as they uh, raise up children, we'll have an heir to the throne who has a bloodline of both uh, Ptolemaic and Seleucid bloodline. That surely will, will, will bring peace. And 
Of course, the only problem with that is the king of the north is already married and is already, already has children. But he agrees. He thinks this is a good idea. So he uh, proceeds to divorce his wife and disinherit the children that he has uh, served with her uh, to marry Bernice. Well, how do you suppose the wife liked that? Uh, not so good. Um, she has the king poisoned. She has Bernice poisoned. And uh, uh, furthermore, even uh, during that year, Bernice's father incidentally uh, passes away. Now, how does the king in the south like the fact that Bernice has been uh, poisoned? Well, Bernice's brother doesn't like that very much at all. What's he do? He takes his armies and he goes up into the north and attacks and conquers the capital. So we see, this was all supposed to bring peace. It didn't bring peace, did it? Now, all of that having been said, if you can hold on to as much of that as you can, look with me to verses 5 through 7. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he uh, uh, and will rule his kingdom with great power. Uh, this is referring to Seleucus, who fled to the south. He was a weak king. He fled to the south, served under, served under Ptolemy, then went back up to, his, uh, up to Babylon, up to his land, and became very, very strong. Verse 6, after some years they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he is in his power will not last. In those days she will be betrayed, together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. This is referring to Bernice, the, king, the, the uh, daughter of the king of the south. Uh, the, the thing didn't work. She did not retain her power. The alliance did not work. Uh, she's poisoned, and so is the king. He is poisoned as well. And you notice that even the prophecy even mentions her father. Uh, her father passes away, incidentally, the same year that Bernice is, is poisoned. Now, if you look at verse 7, one from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. Uh, this is Bernice's brother. Uh, who retaliates and attacks the North. I'm sharing this with you because I don't think a sermon should be a history lesson. It's starting to sound a little bit like a history lesson. But what I, my point is not to, 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 to occupy your time uh, with a history lesson. My point here is to show you how precise this prophecy is. With what precision uh, God is uh, uh, laying out the future here. And then we could go all the way through this uh, these verses and make all kinds of connections where there's controversy over some of the connections but there's a lot of uni unanimity uh, with many of these connections where a lot of scholarship uh, is pretty much in agreement uh, we don't have time to go through all of that if you're interested in that the ESV study bible actually is one of I think it's a great resource for that if you look at the, the notes uh, each step of the way they're fairly easy to follow uh, they were largely written by a, a friend of ours, Ian Duguid, and uh, I think you'll find that they're, they're uh, uh, very, uh, uh, very helpful. And I would, like to, I would like to share a comment from Ian's work on Daniel. This comes from his commentary. And he says these words in terms of uh, verses 5 through 20. He says that this summary, this is, quote, uh, Ian's work here. He says, quote, this summary gives us a, pro a profound perspective 
on history on one level. It is the continual story of wars and rumors of wars as one human ruler in empire uh, after another seeks to gain power by cunning or force. Uh, yet, uh, though the tide in the affairs of men comes in and goes out, in the end it accomplishes precisely nothing. The balance of power in earthly politics may shift, but it never comes to permanent rest. I mean, as we read these things, you know, we're, we're you know, here we are in another election year. And, uh, I mean, I, I can't help but to think about that. You know, we have, you know, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, always jockeying for, uh, f for power. Uh, I think it's interesting. There's never any rest in that, is there? I mean, it's just a constant unrest. Uh, Ian continues, on one hand, therefore, Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. What do power and politics gain for all their toil? All this, as the writer of Ecclesiastes noted, is vanity. It's all vanity. Ian continues, quote, Nor is this a history that God's people would watch from the safety of the sidelines. Some of the Jews were caught up in the conflict directly, seeking to take one side or another, but without success. Others were indirectly affecting us, affected as the force of one side or the other swept through Judah, leaving a trail of destruction in their weight. End of quote. I share this with you. It's hard to follow when you're reading this much. I understand. But I share this with you this morning because I, that's such a good point. The people of God are not standing on the sidelines watching this take place. They're caught up in it. Again, we can easily make application of this as, as uh, uh, political leaders. Um, as they rise and they fall and they enact laws and they enact legislation and they... Uh, to get elected, they run for this, with this group or they run for that group. They're in the process of enacting laws. And we're not just sitting on the sidelines here, are we? They enact laws and legislation that directly affects us and in many cases opposes uh, the views and belief system that we have. Uh, as we say, this is certainly nothing new. This was going on uh, alive and well during the time of Daniel. And it's not going anywhere anytime soon until the Lord returns. Now, uh, let's look uh, briefly at the last two sections, verses 21 through 35. If you look with me in Daniel eleven twenty-one 21 through verse 35. Uh, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. Uh, he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be divided against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. 
and he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged, and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. For it still awaits the appointed time. Okay, the, whereas the last section we looked at covered approximately 150 years, uh, the section we just read covers only 12 years. And whereas the last section of prophecy covered uh, a number of Ptolemaic and Seleucid kings and their conflicts over that course of that 150 years, this section we just read largely focuses on one person, and that's Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, he was a real rascal, actually, um, uh, just a, a real rascal. We're told in verse 21, if you look there, he's described as a, contempt, a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. Antiochus was not in the line to inherit the throne. He gains it through manipulation. He's a master manipulator. He starts out small and he used people to get what he wanted. As soon as he was done with them, he discarded them. Anyone who resisted him was done away with. Uh, this included the uh, priest Onias III, who many scholars believe is, uh, in verse 22, he is the one who's described by the prince of the covenant. It's not, it's not unanimous on that, but many believe uh, that Onias is the one who's being spoken of there. Onias resisted Antiochus. And, uh, uh, you know, Antiochus was increasing pressure on the Jews uh, to conform to, to uh, Greek customs, especially Greek customs that were hostile towards the belief of the Jews. And Ananias, he resisted this pressure and he was removed from office. He was replaced with a puppet high priest and he was later poisoned, actually. Uh, not hard to make application here, is it? I mean... You know, in our own day, there's been an increasing pressure to adopt the views who are antagonistic to God um, that come down through the, the pike. And there's nothing new about this. This has been going on for a really long time. Um, eventually, you know, Antiochus, he will eventually storm into Jerusalem and he'll slaughter hundreds of Jews and he'll overtake the temple. He'll cease, he'll, he'll forbid the daily sacrifices that are going on there and he, he sets up an altar in place of the altar and he offers a swine to the uh, Greek god Zeus there which uh, is described in verse 31 as an abomination that makes desolate as we were reading that section that might have been the only phrase that seemed familiar to you I don't know uh, Jesus speaks of an abomination that makes desolate in Matthew 24 doesn't he and we studied that a while ago and, of course, Jesus is looking into the future 
at a, another fulfillment of that prophecy, if you will, uh, namely the Roman armies coming in and sacking the whole place in AD 70, correct? I mean, um, but um, if, you, if you look at verse 32 with me, notice that he, that is Antiochus, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Uh, here the faithful are resisting him. In verse 33, the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. You know, many who faithfully resisted Antiochus paid a heavy price for that resistance. Uh, many of them were, were imprisoned. Their goods or possessions were confiscated. Uh, many of them were burned at the stake. Uh, many of them fell by the sword. And uh, this kind of embraces what we already know, that faithfulness is often quite costly, isn't it? Uh, thankfully, in our culture, uh, we don't live in a culture where being faithful to Jesus is likely to cause you to wind up being burned at the stake. Uh, but faithfulness to Jesus is still quite costly. It's costly to your reputation. I mean, if you're, if you're serious about uh, being a witness for Christ in the workplace, you already know what I'm talking about. You already, you already got this. You don't need me to say much. When people will misrepresent you. They'll do all kinds of things to discredit you. You'll, you'll wonder why they're doing all this. We, need to, we, need, we don't need to wonder anymore. There's this heavenly battle that's taking place in the, this cosmic spiritual battle that's taking place in the heavenly places. Uh, Satan is opposing everything that God is doing. He certainly wants to oppose any kind of faithful witness that we might be able to, uh, to declare or live out or proclaim. And that's going to be met with opposition. It's going to be met with constant opposition. Uh, so we, might, we need to be careful that we don't um, see this as something strange happening whenever it starts happening. Uh, this, is, this is kingdom business, actually. Um, now... Um, we might ask ourselves, what are we to learn from this Antiochus character? Uh, what we have in Antiochus really is a type. Or a, you might think of him as a model. That might be an easier way to think of him. Antiochus is a model of a certain type of bad guy that comes around every so often. Uh, Hitler would be a, 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 an example. Mussolini would be an example. The current yo-yo that's in uh, uh, North Korea right now would be a, a current example. I think, uh, of that uh, Antiochus-type character. These, uh, these men that are just extraordinarily evil and wicked, they gain power, and um, they use that power to, uh, to uh, pursue uh, wicked agendas. Uh, but we ought to ask ourselves, and I think this is the lesson, uh, where is Antiochus now? Where's Hitler now? Mussolini. You know, and that's, uh, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to go on in North Korea as this regime taunts the world with all kinds of erratic behavior. Where are they going to be in a few years? As fleeting as our life is, where are they going to be? And let's ask another question, follow up that. Where, where are the saints that were persecuted? Where are they now? <laughs> I see smiles coming out in many of your faces. And we've got to remember this is temporary. See, these, 
this whole thing, this whole conflict, you know, going back and forth. That's what Ian says. That's why I included his quote. See, Ian says, this is worthless. This is useless. This is a chasing after the wind. Where does it end up? And where do the faithful end up? We have a bright future ahead of us. We've got some bumps on the road in between. But we've got a bright future ahead of us, don't we? With this, let me say a few words about the last section, verses 36 through 45. Uh, the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods and he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses. Instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into glorious land and the tens of, the, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the many parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and against the land of Egypt he shall not escape, he shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all of the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. And we can read that and we say, what in the world is going on there? I don't know, but I don't know. I like the sound of any of it. Uh, if that's uh, the conclusion you've come to, you're spot on. Uh, there's a lot of things about this we don't know. You can read all kinds of things about this. I'm convinced that uh, uh, there's just so many things about these texts we don't know, and I want to stay on the clear things. Uh, I don't think it does us any good to talk about for half an hour what we don't really know. I think it does us lots of good to talk about what we do know. What do we know? Well, this last section, it's pretty much unanimously agreed. This last section is yet to come to pass. And it speaks of the Antichrist. You know, it speaks of the man of lawlessness who will come. We might think of the book of Revelation. We might think of the Thessalonian letters of that man of, of lawlessness who, who will come. Antiochus was powerful in his day. You know, the Antiochus uh, character... Uh, he, he was very powerful in his day. And I think verse 36 and onward are still speaking in part of Antiochus. Uh, but obviously, uh, it's, it's speaking of someone that's far more powerful than Antiochus. In fact, there's a story I think you guys will, will enjoy. Uh, and I know if we would have lived in the days of Antiochus, we probably would have loved to have been there for this. But Antiochus decided to invade Egypt. He, went, he goes down and he invades Egypt. And Rome is a rising power at this point, a very powerful uh, country at this point. And they decide to get involved in this invasion in Egypt. And Rome sends a delegate down to, 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 to meet with Antiochus. And you know what this delegate did? 
He told Antiochus, he didn't ask him, he told him to withdraw his troops from uh, Egypt. And Antiochus at first resisted. So this delegate took a stick and he drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus. And he says, before you leave this circle, you will withdraw your troops from Egypt. And what do you suppose he did? He knew he was no match for Rome and completely humiliated. He left that circle and abandoned his uh, invasion of Egypt. If we look at verses 42 and 43 here, notice it says, he will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. This is very clearly not referring, it's referring to somebody more powerful than Antiochus. Verse 43, he will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Cushites in submission. Clearly we're seeing a, a king here that's, much greater than Antiochus. I think a good way of looking at this is Antiochus is a tropical storm. A very serious matter. People die in tropical storms. When a tropical storm uh, comes, uh, we don't think much of it because we're not in that kind of, uh, usually not susceptible to those things, but tropical storms are very dangerous. And people lose their lives in them. Uh, but Antiochus is not a uh, Category 5 hurricane. Uh, the, the king here that's coming is probably a Category 10 if there's such a thing. A, a really bad character that's going to uh, step in at the last time and uh, will be the most uh, powerful and evil opponent of Christ's kingdom uh, who will come in the end, the Antichrist figure, if you will. Now, there are many things that could be said in, in, in conclusion of this. There's many directions we could go, but I want to pick up really right where right where I introduced, I mean, the, the application I want to make all of this is the application of prayer. You know, over the last few weeks, I, I've been making a lot of noise about prayer. And uh, at our Bible study on Wednesday, there were quite a few missing. I didn't want to get too far in our study. And I kind of did a little impromptu thing on prayer at our Bible study. The importance of prayer. If we don't learn anything from this, we have to learn the importance of prayer. What is going on here? There's this cosmic battle that's taking place in the heavenly realms. And all of this evil, all of this conflict, all of these things that are happening is the outpouring of this horrible, horrible spiritual conflict. Earthly uh, strategies, earthly maneuvers, earthly things that the church is so prone to take up. They're not sufficient for this battle. Simply not sufficient for this battle. I see in this text an encouragement for us to pray. First of all, I mean, we're encouraged to take up prayer because we get a glimpse of the magnitude. There's no earthly means that can be effective in a war like this. No earthly means. We're encouraged to pray because, really, things are not happening by random chance. Things are not happening by... How can we read the prophecy that we just looked at here this morning and think that things are happening by random chance? God predicts all of this stuff with such detail. But we can conclude he's, he's certainly in control of all of these things. Things don't happen by random chance. This should comfort us when the wheels are coming off. We're encouraged to pray because our Savior is mighty enough to save us. I believe this is an angel speaking to Daniel. If Christ would have come to that, uh, that satanic being that was uh, influencing Persia, he would have hightailed it out of there. 
I can't take the position that this is Christ speaking. He doesn't need the assistance of the Archangel Michael to help him. Christ is mightier than this battle. Fourthly and lastly, we're encouraged to pray because as we do so, our prayers make a difference. As Daniel humbles himself and goes to prayer, that's when the messenger comes, isn't it? And we can be very encouraged by that. I mean, I, I could tell you stories. I shared a, a wonderful story uh, uh, Wednesday in our Bible study. I'll share it real quick again. I mean, we, uh, we, we ministered to a, a young woman uh, in 2008 when this ministry first began. And uh, she came to one of our events, came to a Bible study. And I think at the time, I don't even think we had begun worshiping yet. The ministry was so new. We were just a Bible study. She came to the Bible study, and after the Bible study was over, she hightailed it out of there, got in her car, and we never saw her again for two years. But we prayed for her. Two years, we pretty much nonstop prayed for her. And uh, she called us. Actually, she didn't. She, we called her in response to her uh, asking. Uh, she was reaching out to us. And I shared a basic gospel presentation with her from Isaiah 6. And she came to faith. And that's just one example of the commitment of prayer. Prayer is where it's at. And we could exchange all kinds of stories like this, couldn't we? So I see we have this, this wonderful encouragement uh, to pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, so many details. Uh, such a difficult text, Father, to teach and to preach. Such a difficult text to sit and listen. It's, it's difficult for the speaker. It's difficult for the hearer. It's difficult, Father, but it's good. And it's worth the effort that it takes. It takes so much mental energy to teach this passage. And it takes a lot of mental energy to take in this passage, to hear it preached. But, Father, we have asked you to speak to our hearts this morning. And I have but little doubt that you have answered that request. And many cases, Father, we are encouraged. The events that are taking place, Father, are not outside of your control. You're controlling each one of those things. We do not understand the purposes of each one of these things, but that is not our place to understand all of these things, Father. We recognize that, Lord, you're in control. We recognize, Father, that our prayers make a difference. And we're encouraged this morning, Father, to take up prayer. So, Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts, work this text in our hearts, uh, that we would be encouraged to take up prayers for the building of your kingdom, O oh Father, uh, for the building and uh, for the welfare. Uh, for, as we look around, we, we can relate with Daniel. There's a lot of destitution. In many cases, the building has stopped and the gospel has been abandoned. And, and in many cases, the church is really in a, just in a terrible state. So, Father, may this encourage us to pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.